and welcome to the first episode of this brand new podcast, Planet Centred Care. My name's Florence Webmore. I'm a medical registrar in London and a sustainability fellow at the BMJ. I'm joined by my co-host Lauren, who I will let introduce herself, um, but we'll also then talk a little bit about why we're doing this podcast together. Great. Thanks, Flo. Um, so I'm Lauren DeFritas. I'm a medical doctor working in emergency medicine in Trinidad and Tobago, and I'm also a freelance clinical editor with the BMJ. Um, so first of all, I met Flo through our roles at the, the BMG. Um, before she joined, um, there was a lot of interest in, in climate change and health and sustainable healthcare. And the Greener NHS was doing a lot of great work. So the BMG decided to collaborate with the Greener NHS. And part of that collaboration involved having a sustainability fellow, which was Flo, who's the first sustainability fellow with the BMG. Um, and because of our mutual interest in climate change and health and sustainable healthcare, that's how we started to work together and um, how this podcast came about as part of her work. Yeah, I mean, that's great. And the, the aim of this podcast really is to tell the stories of people who are trying to get involved in sustainable healthcare, so ordinary clinicians on the ground trying to, to do something about this. Um, and having Lauren's perspective um, is, has been really great to learn from. Um, so there's a lot of work happening in, in the UK and the kind of other higher resource settings, but to kind of have Lauren's perspective and to be able to learn from that um, about what might work in, in where she's working in Trinidad and Tobago um, is a really great opportunity. Yeah, it's fantastic. And I just want to say that you know, the NHS um, is definitely one of the leaders in sustainable healthcare and climate change and health. And a lot of us are looking to the NHS to see what you're doing and what works in your setting and what could potentially work in different settings. So it's definitely a lot of useful, valuable information um, and a lot of different perspectives that we're going to get on this podcast as well. So the aim of this series is really to tell the stories of people who are active in sustainable healthcare and greening healthcare, and, and maybe some of the things that are easy, but also some of the things that are a bit more difficult to do in trying to make these changes. Um, and this particular episode, we're going to focus in on that first step, that time when you start to see that there's something that can be done um, and that there are these changes that you can make. Um, and we've taken this very much from an angle of starting to see what you can do but it might be that especially with all the extreme weather that's going on at the moment with heat waves and wildfires around the world people might be also coming from this realization from a kind of anxiety from a climate crisis what can I do about it and, and, and kind of coming from that angle instead and I guess it's worth just saying in terms of who this whole podcast series is aimed at it's anybody who is interested in making that change whether or not you've done something already or this is a new thing for you um, and it may be that you're making changes in your home home life but you haven't really worked out what you're going to do at work um, and so we hope by, by telling the stories of, of people who have made that change we can make it um, accessible for, for those people who, who are at that point of taking those first steps. Um, so I'm really excited to be joined by three guests um, who've all got very different experiences uh, to bring in this. Um, and so I'll hand over them to them just to give a short introduction of um, what they do and where they work. So I'll start with you, Gareth. Good afternoon. Um, yeah, I'm Gareth Merker. I'm the technical manager in renal services at the Royal Free Hospital in uh, North London. Um, I've been there forever um, and it about 2021, I was asked to look into sustainability um, by our clinical director, um, 
and it's had quite an effect on my career since. Brilliant. And we look forward to hearing a bit more um, about that as we go through. Um, and next, Gwen, do you want to just quickly introduce yourself? Uh, so, hi, I'm Gwen, uh, Gwen Sim from um, the Royal London Hospital. So I have, um, I have been a nurse for 15 years and I started my career in Singapore um, and moved to, to the UK seven years ago. Um, when I first moved to the UK, I worked in Lancaster for um, 14 months before I moved over to the Royal London um, and I'm currently working in the intensive care unit there. Well, no, I'm lying. I'm actually on a sabbatical from um, from work at the moment. Um, so I took a nine-month sabbatical this year, um, where the where this four months, um, the last four months of my sabbatical is um, based on cycling from Istanbul to Portugal to raise funds for a bicycle charity. It's brilliant. And um, Gwen's actually in Bosnia this morning, so really exciting to have you join us from there. Cool. And finally, um, last but not least, um, Alifia. Hi, everyone. Um, so, yes, uh, I, I'm the head of pharmaceutical sustainability with Scottish Government. But um, before that, I was, um, I was the lead pharmacist for theatres and aesthetics. Um, my interest in sustainability or environmental sustainability has been long but um, I only became really cognizant or rather made the connection between um, the healthcare footprint and, sustain, you know, and um, it, well, the large emissions at around 2017, 2018, uh, when I started my MPH and I realised how far behind we were in sustainability. So I made it my mission to try and embed sustainability, environmental sustainability into my practice around that time. So that's a little bit about me. <laughs> Great. So I'm... Um- I think each of us have got kind of quite a different experience of, of how we came into this. Um, and I'm particularly interested to hear, to start with you, Gareth, um, because I know that perhaps you were a little bit sceptical um, before you started um, to see some of the things you could do to kind of enact some sustainability where you work. Do you want to tell us a bit more about that? Uh, as I say, it was April 2021, I was asked by a clinical director, would I look into sustainability? And fair to say it wasn't my top priority having just come out of the pandemic and all of that we know we've been building temporary dialysis units in icus and all the rest like everybody else so um we were just catching breath and i thought fine and although i was skeptical about whether i could actually achieve much or whether i'd just make some fringe benefits i'd read the literature and and Three sort of subjects generally come up in dialysis about water usage, electricity usage and something called central concentrate. So I I looked at the water and the electricity and uh, yeah, there are marginal gains you can make um, and we've enacted those where we can. And that's what I thought would be it really. Um, I approached it from the idea that we're not going to do anything that makes the treatment worse for our patients. That had to be the bottom line. Obviously anything that was uh, more expensive would be difficult in the current climate. That was the the reality of the situation. So um, then, then I looked at this project um, f- called Central Acid Delivery where uh, for each treatment, and we do about 115,000 a year, we have a five litre can of the sort of terrifyingly called acid concentrate, which is far weaker than vinegar, so it's it's not actually dangerous at all. Um, and the machine dilutes this, and, and the, the shocking figure was that we did an audit and we found out at the end of each treatment, 
we were throwing away one third of each can. I had no idea. I, I thought there might be two or three hundred mils. You don't want the can to run out or the, the machine would alarm and the treatment interrupted. So you always need a little excess. And, and I've since just done the simple calculations about the amount of dialysate we need for a four hour treatment and all of this. And, and it all comes out that we actually need about three and a half litres ish of, of concentrate rather than the five litres that we buy. So we end up pouring this down the drain. So th th this was my moment, really, as a sort of a techie nerd with a fine-tooth comb, <laughs> reasonable on Excel sheets, throwing away a third of what you buy allows you to go, hang on. So, so that was the, the, the sort of moment for me when I thought, right, okay. And the alternative to buying a can for each treatment is to get some very large tanks, you know, four or five thousand litre tanks installed in our units and some infrastructure installed with some uh, small pipe work that goes all around the dialysis unit. The machines connect up to it and they take in as much as they need for the treatment. And it immediately meant we were going to save a third of the money that we spent on the concentrate which to me was fantastic, you know. Um, in, in the two units we're doing, we're going to save about over £45,000 a year. That, that was brilliant. And, and it was far later that I worked out the carbon implications. But perhaps we'll come back to that in a bit. I'm, I'm interested to know, Gwen... Like, is there something in, in what Gareth's saying that, that is similar to, to how you kind of first started to see this stuff or, or perhaps um, you came from a slightly different um, way to, to kind of seeing the, these changes that you could make? Mm -hmm. So for myself, I am working in Singapore and we don't have free healthcare. It's not a thing. Um, so, you know, in um, based on my experience in Singapore, Patients are actually built, um, you know, every single um, item that they actually use in hospital, be it, um, you know, a packet of diapers or, you know, um, a dressing set, uh, a packet of gauze, everything is actually accounted for. And um, at the end of the hospitalization, um, the patient has to pay for it. But anyhow, um, when I moved over to the UK seven years ago, um, I worked in a hospital in um, Lancaster. And... What I saw there, the practice was, um, you know, I mean, not, not to badmouth anyone or anything, but um, what I saw shocked me because um, a nurse was doing a dressing for a, a surgical wound, which was barely 5 cm. And um, she said, uh, Gwen, could you pass me a couple of gauze? And so I said, okay. So I gave her like uh, a packet of gauze, which has five pieces of gauze in it. Because a couple is two, so you know, five pieces of gauze should be enough. Uh, you know, if it uses the dressing set as well. And she was like, "Oh, Gwen, this is just stinge. Get me more gauzes." I'm like, "Why do you need more gauzes?" Um, so they just grabbed like a few packets of gauze, opened them all out, and only used maybe a couple, and then threw the rest of it away. And that shocked me. I said, "Why? Why did you have to use open up so many packets of gauze? Because that's a waste." And she's like, "Well, we're not paying for it anyway." And I was like, "What?" So that that really shook me. I'm like, okay, maybe it's just one off, but no, it's you know not only one person, but it's a, it's the entire unit. And I thought, okay, fine, maybe it, they're just you know different. And when I moved to London um six years ago, I kind of saw 
it was a common theme, you know, people just use resources without thinking what impact it has on, you know, the environment or even you know, the, the cost that the unit has to bear. Like, it's, it's just unbelievable when I see the amount of waste that, that goes through um, the intensive care. I decided to um, start this project. It's called, um, uh, it's a project to combat waste, to be honest. Uh, and it's called an anti-wastage campaign to bring awareness to the nurses on the intensive care about, you know, how much it costs. So I set out the prices of a syringe, a needle, a gauze. And in, in the Royal London, um, the intensive care, every bedside would have uh, a trolley where all consumables um, that the patient might use during their stay would be, um, you know, topped up into that trolley. So what I saw was nurses putting lots and lots of, you know, syringes. You could have, you know, at the end of a patient's stay, you could have 25 new syringes. All this adds up. Um, and so when I did um, tabulate the cost of each trolley, it came up to about £150 per trolley if you stocked it up um, to the bare minimum. Not bare minimum, but, you know, just enough for the patient to use so that, you know, you don't have to throw the things away when a patient gets discharged, especially if the patients are infectious. We don't keep the items for the next patient. The The bad thing is this project was... I, I did this project just before COVID started. And when COVID came, um, nobody cared anymore about, you know, the waste. And everyone just, you know, brought things into the unit. And, you know, at the end of it, things get chucked away. And so nurses who joined our unit during COVID had no concept of, um, you know, you're not supposed to bring all this amount into the room because during COVID, you were thought to bring everything into the room so that you don't have to keep going out and change your PPE and everything else. So last year when um, our unit had new bedside trolleys uh, come come in, I created like a map, a trolley map, um, so that nurses have a visual of how much items each trolley needs. So we've got about four drawers. The first drawer would be for the medication, second drawer would be for you know syringes, third drawer would be needles and and so on and so off so forth. What I did was I actually added the cost of the trolley, um, each each section of the trolley, so um the nurses had a an idea how much they actually wasted. And um I made some of them do audits as well. Like every time a patient gets discharged, they would have to, you know, write down like how many items get thrown away and they're like Gwen I can't believe how much waste there is on our unit but I mean you know after that I left on a sabbatical so I never followed it up. So it sounds like you you've kind of helping other people see what you had seen from from that different perception of having kind of worked in Singapore and then and then coming into the into the UK you're helping some of those other nurses have that same kind of moment. Yeah, I hope so. I hope I hope now that I'm not there for nine months, um, people continue to see that we don't continue wasting resources. And was was this something that before you kind of had that moment, had you thought about kind of the you know the sustainability aspects of healthcare at all before that, or was it really that kind of that moment when you first you were saying in Lancaster and yeah? So before before that moment, um, I was just you know going through emotions and you know. I, obviously, I, I mean, coming from Singapore, we don't really like waste because we pay for everything. So I guess um, the incident in Lancaster actually opened my eyes and and, and realised that, you know, places with free healthcare, so, sometimes it just blinds um, the, the people working in healthcare, like how much you got to pay for this stuff. And obviously, you know, we had um, shortages of 
medications shortages of um, you know supplies last year um, where there were no stocks of anything and um, people just realize that there's just so much waste that it all has to come from somewhere I don't think it's just it's not just about um, the healthcare being free I think it's also a cultural attribute because if you go to the US you pay for healthcare and they will turn over volumes and volumes of goods. So I think it's a layered, um, I think behaviours are very layered and complex. So um, the US has the worst performer in terms of glut, in, um, in terms of, uh, and it has probably the most um, tiered model you can possibly imagine, you know, most privatised model you can possibly imagine. You have sort of, sort of you, you guys have some sort of social insurance in place, and it's not necessarily a perfect model, but I think there is something you know, um, you know, I, I cross several cultures myself and different cultures have a, a view on um, just less, less is more. Excess is considered an, un, an unattractive trait. Let's put it that way. It's not considered a good thing. You, you see at a dinner table, you would never, like in, in my home, you would never order more than you can eat and you'd always put pack food away and take it away. Well, I'll see people putting food, you know, so there is a cultural element to all of that. Um, so, yeah, I think that's something we need to just be mindful of. If I could add one thing there as well, is that I, I, I spent quite a lot of my career in the private sector as a service engineer fixing dialysis equipment. And I worked out in the Middle East in Jordan uh, for two and a half years. And it's an NHS thing. It's probably a large corporation thing, but it's certainly an NHS thing. Um, there does seem little appreciation of the costs of things. And I think one of the challenges that we face is, and it's true of me, is I think most people are pretty good at recycling and everything in their home lives these days. It's bringing that attitude to work and encouraging staff to know that it will make a difference. I think that's a really interesting point there, which kind of comes back to what you were saying at the beginning, Gareth, was, is that like, actually you can make a difference and empowering people. And I guess you you three are all here because you have felt empowered. And, and then perhaps that's something we can come back to about kind of what, what does empower people to, to, you know, once they start to see this thing, these things, it's not just to see it, but then to kind of feel like they can make a change. And yeah, but the thing it's you know like um, when when I saw this waste, it's not just um, nursing level or medical level. It's also I mean I think um, someone works in um, pharmacy in the pharmacy department in this chat as well in this podcast. Um, so in our intensive care, we've got our own pharmacy um, that stocks up all intensive care medicines, all medicines that we use in the intensive care anyway. And every time when I try to um, exchange um, drugs there expiring in for example in two months things like atropine that we hardly use um, in intensive care and I would imagine like places like emergency would use it more or um, it's just really hard to get it swapped out um, so that somebody else could use um, drugs that are not expired still in date but are close to expiring and all I get is oh just leave it there till it expires and we'll get a new one for you but that is not what we want oh you're making my blood boil <laughs> you're exactly right you move it to a high place of high turnover so it doesn't get wasted that's exactly what you should do yeah exactly what you should do how, how 
how does this all resonate to you Lauren when you're listening to this yeah I think um Gwen's story is is very familiar um because Trinidad has a big private sector as well and the public sector is similar to the NHS so it's free at the point of care um and I've worked in both public and private but for me I found that working privately um I am more aware of what I'm using for the reasons that Gwen said because every item is counted and the patient has to pay for that and you're more acutely aware of this patient in front of you who has to pay for it so depending on where you are I mean if you're in a, in a private hospital well everything is itemized um, if you're in a private GP's office everything is not itemized but you know they're still paying for their visits and for their tests so I find myself trying to do less or what is absolutely necessary for them or talk them out of doing the unnecessary tests. Um, but in the public system where it's free and you're less aware of what things cost, um, you tend to be more relaxed with how you use the resources. Um, but even within the public system, when I've worked in lower resourced um, emergency departments versus those that have a little bit more uh, materials, your thought process changes as well. Because once you have access to something, you're more than likely just going to use it. But if you don't have access to it, I find we become more clinical. We use our guidelines and look at the patient in front of us versus going to a test to support whatever it is we're thinking. And similar, I think, when you were saying with your ICU carts and stocking them up, what happens when we run out of resources? Because I work in a standalone emergency department. Um, so we might hide some of the tests. So we have a point of care testing now. <laughs> and you'd only put out a few per shift. And with respect to the medications that you're talking about, we actually do that. So when things are near expiry date, you'll see the nurses coming around saying, okay, doc, these um, antibiotics are going to expire soon. If you, need, if you have patients who need it, use it. Or different departments will swap it. They'll send it down to the emergency department, high volume. So you use it faster than we can. Um, yeah. So, but yeah, definitely a difference between public and private, and how you how you view things and, and approach um, waste. We've not we've not heard Alifia. Your story is probably slightly different because we, we've talked a lot about waste. But I think the work that you've done is slightly different, and also the kind of how you came into this. I think. Um, do you want to tell us a bit more about kind of how you started getting involved in in sustainable healthcare? Yeah, so, I mean, like I said, I, I've had an interest in environmental sustainability for a really long time, uh, but I returned to clinical practice around 2017, and um, that, was, that was a big sea change for me um, after 20 years not being in clinical practice. And in the same year, I also started an MPH, Masters in Public Health. Um, my background's global public health, but um, it's been many years since I did any, any formal studies, so I kind of wanted to get put something back in my brain. It was really, really quite obvious the level of waste and a lot, um, sort of the avant-garde practices for me. And my background's global health, so I guess I worked in sort of um, lower-income countries where you're quite frugal with your resources. And I think that's absolutely right. Even in a not-for-profit setting, you wouldn't be wasteful with your resources. So, you know, so I understood all of that. Um, but you know, that wasn't. You know, there were other things too. Sort of the sort of growing. Um, the need for the NHS to be viable as well, you know. But um, so I put, I, I realized I wanted to do my research in that area. Um, 
and I, I accepted a job um, just as a part-time job. I thought this will be peaceful. <laughs> this will be peaceful. And then obviously <laughs> a pandemic hit. So <laughs> I actually thought that, oh, this will be peaceful. Yeah, I, I kind of, um, before I jo- started the job, I did a, 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 did a small little bit of research on um, theatres and anaesthetics. And uh, I realised how much, um, the high turnover attached with theatres um, and realised gases were, were kind of the, if, if you like, the low-hanging fruit. The first thing I did was um, in my first meeting, I brought um, something a little bit unusual. I brought carbon metrics to the finance team. So I... So not just looking at sort of the finance reports of the top, you know, the top drugs we use and blah, 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 but, but also looking at the emission footprint and actually sort of, and then later on sort of the cost implication of all of that. I couldn't understand why the emissions for nitrous oxide were unmoving. So um, just to give some context, um, we were 10,100 tonnes in emissions for the volatiles. We're now down to around 13. 1300 tons and going down still because we'll get rid of desflurane in, in its entirety um but nitrous oxide was sort of at the same time was rough, around nine and a half thousand tons and it was unmoving and i just thought hang on this doesn't really make any sense because my anesthetists um this is just anesthetic nitrous oxide not etanox which is used in um for maternity and pain relief you would see that drop off because they're demonstrating environmental behavior so I, I made sure I did some research, realized we weren't gathering the data correctly. We were looking at it all wrong. It, it's delivered in a different way. It's, it's not like paracetamol or something you get from, you know, it, it's just a way of delivery. And I realized very quickly that system loss was actually the main driver and actually clinical use was negligent. Um, and, um, and that's led to the nitrous oxide project. So that's led to a sort of a big national program, but also a global program to mitigate this agent. And then the pandemic was, was horrible, but I was pull, pulled into oxygen strategy. So that actually helped me understand gases some more. And because we do have loss, I realized you have loss from outlets from oxygen. And I thought, actually, I'm, I think my loss theory is probably correct. And it wasn't, yeah, it was, it was 100% correct. So the system loss for anesthetic nitrous oxide is around 95% with antinox, which is for gas and air, is around 60%. Um, and that's just poor, um, just poor supply poor supply methodology and again when you're dealing with these big systems like I think Gareth was mentioning you're looking at these systems they're the heavy large enormous cylinders right so you you're you're loading them on and at one site they were changing the equivalent of 792,000 a year in um liters a year and it wasn't going into a single patient yeah it was bizarre and um I just I it was really it's really unusual but it's not unique to the UK, it's, um, it seems to be an international problem. So my effort with the nitrous is to really try and accelerate the understanding of how that, that gas is supplied, because if it is an unnecessary agent, just honestly strip it out or minimize that how you supply it, you know? So that's, that's a little bit of me. <laughs> but <laughs> So did you, you came into this kind of looking for something sustainability related not expecting to find it right in front of your face in anaesthetics. Is that right? Yeah. So, no. So, I, I got offered the job, um, I think it was October 2018, um, to join the team at Lothian. And I joined. But before that, I did some research because, if you know me, I'm, I'm a bit of an anorak. And so, I knew, I kind of had this idea that, you know, what can I do to a face? So, I, did, I already knew 
before I turned up through the front door that they were in for a ride. They just didn't know what it was going to look like. <laughs> and when I started looking at the data, which was really poor quality, I was able to get the data um, from a central source. So I started getting it from the medical gas supplier itself. And so that's how we look at the data now. And the medical um, gas suppliers are actually partners in sort of helping us reduce that waste um, to some extent. So, um, no, I, I didn't. I didn't know. I didn't know I'd find such a high level of system loss for the nitrous oxide. That was a shock. But the data doesn't lie. And um, at some point, you have to trust what's in front of your eyes. You know, you have to believe the numbers. And um, and it turned out to be true. And it's been true for. I think it's something like 30 sites across the UK, 30, more than 30 systems. I think we've, de we've decommissioned 18 or 19 systems in Scotland alone, and they're decommissioned another sort of similar number in England so far. No, more, probably more. And um, it's decommissioned, they're decommissioning in New Zealand and Australia um, and at 30 sites in Brazil. So I think, um, yeah, it's proving to be... It's 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 it, it, it wasn't yeah it was a bit of a shock but like lucky lucky somebody found it. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna come back to something you said there in a, in a second, but I'm I'm interested to know first whether Lauren, did you have a moment like kind of Gwen and Gareth where you suddenly thought, hang on a second, whoa, or or was it something more gradual for you? And because I know you you've got an interest in in kind of um, yeah greening healthcare systems and so on. Yeah, it's definitely more gradual for me. Um, no light bulb moment. Um, and yeah, I think it was a, in the middle of the pandemic that I met somebody who was leading an NGO, um, looking at sustainable healthcare and, and climate change and health generally in the Caribbean. Um, and it's just been a, yeah, a gradual, um, interest still trying to figure out what we can do. And I think it was, was it Alifia who said in the beginning that when she went back to work and she felt like, you know, very far behind or the NHS was very far behind. Um, that's how I feel. <laughs> I don't feel like you're far behind at all. I feel like we're very far behind um, because you hear a lot of projects and initiatives coming out of the NHS and, you know, we're still in those very early stages of, of just trying to generate interest and get support to actually do things in our daily clinical practice. And that, that's the part that I'm interested in. What can we do in our daily clinical practice? And so it's really more when I hear stories like from Gwen and Gareth and Alifia, that's when you start to feel the inspiration and motivation that it is possible to do something. Um, so really great to hear everybody's stories as, um, as a motivation to, to keep going. What I have learned, and, and I think um, Gwen and Alifia support this, is that if you start to look where you save money, then that, that inevitably leads to almost more greening. It's an interesting, I've never seen a sustainability project that actually costs more than what we're doing at the moment. So one of the things we're, we're working on, we've, we launched earlier this year in Scotland, um, was the Green Theatre Programme. So if you think of um, the acute sector, well, it butts onto primary really as well, because I think this is the thing. I think we need to start thinking in systems. And when we overly exaggerate the differential between primary and secondary, we can run into problems. So um, one of the things we've launched is the Green Theatre Programme. And that stemmed out of um, some really good project work done in, in some of the regions. In particular, one was NHS Highlands, where they 
initiated sustainability projects, um, small team and anaesthetist and a couple of waste managers, um, Ruth Innes and a, a chap called John Burnside and Ken Barker, excellent people. And um, what they did, they initiated 11 projects. Not only were they the hugely carbon emissions, I don't have the data in front of me, but they were really quite large carbon emission savings, but also um, £130,000 were saved. And not only that, they also just improve the quality of care and flow within the theatre environment because things like you know, um, bodily fluid scavenging systems were introduced as opposed to using this disgusting resin that they pump it into and then it's embedded and then it's burnt. Um, I mean, honestly, insane stuff. Like, why would you do that when you can do that? And it's more, car it's more car you know, less carbon intensive. It's bonkers. So, um, so some of the changes they made were not... They weren't an inconvenience. So within the Green Theatre Programme, we've actually got 50 IAs. So we're, we're, bundle A's gone out. Nitrous oxide's part of that bundle, <laughs> obviously, and desflurane. They're being tested in different hospitals and different boards. And those barriers and facilitators looked at. And if the viability's there, they will be then rolled out nationally. So that allows a rapid roll out of change does that make sense so i think that's kind of the program and that's a really good model to work with so it's like it's a little bit like a hub and smoke model but using quality improvement and uh, implementation science methodologies so um i'm very proud of that <laughs> so yeah that's that's exciting for us <laughs> yeah it sounds it and and the other thing that i think that hearing from kind of all of your stories is is that we need all these perspectives. I think that, that, like all of you are saying, well, I saw something that nobody else would have seen because of, you know, exactly where I work in, in the system. You know, it'd be it, how on earth the central acid gets to a dialysis machine or, you know, all these things being thrown away. I think like what you're all saying to me is I had a different view from anybody else in that system. And by kind of coming to that with it and then thinking about sustainability, then you were able to make a change and I'm kind of interested um then where do you go from there so once you know for, for our listeners perhaps they've had that same experience and they're kind of saying oh I've seen something that nobody else has seen yet you know what where do you go from there what's what's the kind of next step what helped with that next step when you're smiling well um so for myself once i'm done with the sabbatica and i'm all recharged um so just before i left i actually um, put in a request to come up with a new group in my intensive care where we would look into you know the wastage in intensive care and how to reduce them um, and also to bring awareness to new starters especially because um, for new nurses who had joined us um you know during covid they had picked up all the bad habits, um, like I said earlier, without having an awareness that that is not how we normally do things. We don't overstock up the trolleys just because we worry that we can't get more items. So my plan would be to form a group with a couple of nurses or a group of nurses based on different seniorities to help me combat the waste uh, on the unit and uh, just move things forward. So kind of finding some other people, some allies as... Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think gathering a small amount of data is very important as well. In in my experience, it, rather than do a large scale project straight off, I I think if you you just choose one example that fairly black and white, then you can start to convince other people in that yeah. way. So um, I mean, I'm glad you said that because I actually um, just before I left, I 
had collated data from um, the old trolleys that we used to have um, versus the new trolleys after I have um, you know come up with a trolley map with the cost of items and things. Um, so I've got data of um, these items. I mean, I mean, data of the the wastage that we collected um, pre and post the uh, trolley mapping. Um, I just haven't had time to go and look into that because there's a lot of calculations. Um, but yes, uh, I, I do have the data. I just need to get down to looking at it. <laughs> Can I just ask Gareth a question? Because on that same point, um, I'm interested in, in the waste and dialysis because um, we have a lot of patients in Trinidad who require dialysis as well. So with your advice about starting small, um, how exactly did you all start off? And I'm assuming as well that you had a team that, um, that you put together to lead the projects. Uh, no, just, um, huh? I, I <laughs> <laughs> just you. no, no, I, I just, listen, we're, we're a team of seven, um, sad techies. Um, and what we did was we just, I literally, I got one of my team to go into the dirty utility and we did a, a snapshot audit across our entire service on what at the end of one average session and they just compared how much was left in the can and from then we were yeah it's one third of every single can that we throw away uh, and, and that will be true of almost every unit that to me was gathering that data and, and the, no one was arguing at that point yeah I think that's, I think that's quite the, useful um, for people who are now starting off and you might feel overwhelmed. Yeah. So something as simple as, yeah, just checking the amount that's left over is a really nice starting point um, to get that conversation started and, and get the momentum mm -hmm. going. And and I've walked past this waste and ignored it for my entire career. I, I just have to yeah. plead guilty to yeah. that uh, <laughs> this moment, you know. I, th I have to say I'm very bad at not listening to the uh, yeah. just start with one project. Yeah. Um, I'm a bit like, oh, I can do this and this and this. Um, but anyway, I think uh, we could continue this conversation all day and, and there's lots of really, really interesting stuff coming out. But I think, uh, you know, we should probably wrap things up. And, and I'm just wondering before we do, if each of you, if we could kind of go around and just say, you know, for as I said before, for one of our listeners who's just having this moment, they've sort of said, oh, hang on a second this is happening in my unit and you know no one else seems to have noticed this or like you know we could make this change what what one piece of advice would you give for them um maybe we'll start with alifia I, I would gather some data on that so you, people you can then demonstrate that visually I, I like that contrast that Gwen did but it depends what it is so for example if you see that nitrile glove use is off the charts like your people are putting on nitrile gloves for nothing you know for opening a door you know uh, to a room you know I, I think something like there's some ridiculous stat and um nitrile gloves aren't even of it of any use there's there's no need to put a glove on when you're just even just turning you know turning a patient you don't need to just wash your hands you know so um unless you're dealing with mucus or blood fluid so you could see that you could chart it and then you could just do an it sounds awful you could do a spot or yeah i'm making it up but you could recruit but the trick is to um recruit a couple of pals do you know what I mean? Recruit a couple of pals and um, and something like the nitrile glove campaign won't just affect nursing staff or care staff. You'll see the porter popping what pair on to trolley a patient to x-ray. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my gosh. So I'm, I'm just giving an example, but I think find a couple of pals, do a little bit of a picture audit so you can tell a narrative, a story. The data tells a story. 
and then find out who your allies are. Your allies are procurement. They have lot, lots of data. Um, you know, who are your allies in, in all of this? Um, and also, surprisingly, um, infection control, because they will tell you that actually why are you popping a pair of gloves for, for now when, when, the, when the push comes to shove. They'll tell you that. They'll tell you also other things, but you won't necessarily agree with. <laughs> but um, on that, they'll agree with you. So, so I'm just saying pick a project, find some pearls, get some data. That's a, a great little summary and also a great trail for we are going to have some of the, the nurses who did the first project on the on the gloves on one of our later episodes. So thank you. Um, Gwen, any last other advice that, that somebody sitting in, in your shoes as you were, you know, when, when you first had that moment of, whoa? I mean, I think, um, you know, once you see something and you know no one's going to do it, you've got to do it. If not, it would never be done. So um, there's no point waiting around. Just start um, collecting data, like what Alifia said. Um, and then, yeah. you know, you can prove it, you know, it's black and white, that this waste is actually happening or this um, problem is, you know, in, in, in our system. Yeah. Well, we had lots of nods all around there. Um, and Gareth, any, anything you'd add to that? Um, yeah, my, my piece of advice is uh, that I thought we'd make huge carbon savings by the, the manufacturer not making one third of this fluid for us to throw away. But when I've done all the calculations, it's actually the plastic. And I've noticed it now comes home to me that we are brilliant at buying plastic wrapped in more plastic. And plus in, in terms of medical devices and consumables, it's almost always um, virgin plastic from oil and so if you want to make big carbon savings have a look at where you have plastic and where you could get something in larger packs or smaller packs or less um, and and the other one other area is wherever in the world we are buying salty water whether that be dialysate fluid or cvvh fluid in icu or saline the technology exists to make this in situ these days um yes and and that would make yes, a vast yes. vast difference uh, the, the the idea that the yeah. nhs imports a liter of water with nine grams of salt from spain double wrapped in plastic in 2023 is is ridiculous to me yeah that that points that point is probably even more more salient than excuse the saline <laughs> <term there. laughs> but um but even purified water there's there's the opportunity and this has huge um benefits for low-income countries if they have the ability or, or remote communities if they have the ability to make some of this stuff locally suddenly their, their, their resilience just increases, you know? So I think, yeah, I think, it's, I think we will be doing a lot of in-situ manufacturing um, as the technologies improve. That's a challenge for someone out there for some innovation. Lauren, any last kind of points of reflection and having heard all of this that, that you're going to take away from, from kind of listening to all these stories today? Yeah, um, I think my takeaway points are that um, it is possible to have sustainable initiatives in your in your health settings and the way to start is starting small with one just one focus um, get a group of people and collect data um, and I, I do like Garrett's last point about the cost because um, you know I've had somebody here say that to me that when when you're in the health setting um, and you need to make a change and you have to talk to the executives it's cost that they're going to care about. 
Um, so we need to speak their language as well before we ask them to speak our language, I guess. Lovely. I, I heard the phrase recently, care, cost and carbon. And we haven't touched so much on the care aspect, which, which maybe we'll come back to in a future episode. But yeah, really nice point to, to round off here. So I just want to say thank you for everyone who's listening. Um, really interesting stories. And I think there's lots of stuff um, we can come back to, particularly yeah, that care, cost and carbon kind of underlying um, message I think we'll, we'll definitely hear again um, so please do stick around for future episodes um, um, where we'll be coming back to some of these topics um, and we've got lots of super interesting guests coming up um, you can also check out the, the climate pages on the BMJ website um, and particularly keep an eye out for this autumn where we'll be um, launching a new education series really looking at these small tangible projects where there is evidence where you can start to make a, make a change which will be launching our climate issue in the autumn um, so I just want to say a massive thank you to all of our guests for, for taking the time to join us today and for telling their stories um, and look forward to um, catching up with you on a future episode